Thank you for that introduction of which I am not worthy. Um, truly, it was 2017 that I was here to preach last, and thank you for that invitation. I think it was because I had just recently been here and a part of this community that when I had that conversation with Emily, you and your witness were so fresh in my mind and heart that I said, these are the people that you need to be with. So thank you for being a commendable community. And thank you for having me to be a part of your worship today. Ezekiel is a prophet in exile. A prophet in exile. And as I try to wrap my mind around it, I have to admit that I don't know much about exile. Except for the fact that I'm a native Californian living in Tennessee. Um, <laughs> which there's a lot more of these days. I tell people often when they say, where are you from originally? I say, I'm from California. But I moved here nine years ago. Not a part of like the recent exodus. Uh, we're still understanding what it is like to live in Tennessee. I was on the phone with my husband as he was driving home from work a, a couple months ago, and he was in the middle of telling me a story about something that had happened. In mid-sentence, he stopped talking and just starts laughing hysterically. And I said, what, what, what happened? What's wrong? And he said, this morning on my drive to work, I passed a deer that had been hit by a car that was off to the side of the road. It was a two-point buck that had been hit, roadkill, off to the side of the road. He said, now I'm driving home, and somebody has come and decapitated that deer. Like, it, it is just headless. Somebody was driving around probably with the chainsaw in the back. I don't know. Or they went home to get the chainsaw. How does that happen? I don't know. I'm still wrapping my mind around what it is to live in Tennessee. <laughs> but it is a good and a beautiful place, and we are discovering God's presence there. But the exile of Ezekiel is a bit of a different kind of exile. It's a different kind of exile, and in this exile, in this unlikely place, Ezekiel receives a vision of holiness. If you don't know much about the Church of the Nazarene, which I'm from, holiness is kind of our thing. Uh, which I, I, I take it that we have that in common with the tradition at Asbury. Holiness, we are a holiness people. And for the Church of the Nazarene, I might even say holy love is kind of our thing. It's really important to who we are, the ethos of, of our people. And there's a theologian in our tradition who I want to introduce you to today. I don't know if there are many Nazarenes or if you're familiar with Nazarenes. So I, I want to introduce you to one of our theologians who might be a helpful conversation partner to you. Her name was Mildred Bangs Winecoop. And recently I was reading a biography of Winecoop. And as I was reading her biography, I was also studying the book of Ezekiel. I was studying the book of Ezekiel, and I just couldn't get away from some of the similarities of their life story. It felt almost like I was seeing these two woven into the same tapestry. Both Ezekiel and the people of Israel, and Mildred and these people called Nazarenes, found themselves at somewhat of a crisis point in the life of their communities. And God gave them both very similar visions of holiness. So I want to tell you their two stories today, just in case. Today or any other day in the future, you might find yourself in a place of crisis. In case there might ever be a point where you experience a crisis of faith, crisis of courage, crisis of deconstruction, I hope that their stories offer you a vision that is so much bigger than any one moment of crisis. 
a vision of holiness that gives a home for your restless heart. So first, let's start with Ezekiel, shall we? Ezekiel is a young priest in training. Ezekiel was born into a family of priests in Jerusalem, the holy city, called the Zadokites. And his tribe of priests were the dominant priests of the temple in Jerusalem at the time. He was raised around the temple with all the sights and sounds of this holy place. So growing up as a young child, the stories of Torah, those were his stories. The, the songs of scripture, those were his songs. This was what he grew up in. And his earliest memories would have been in these holy spaces in Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, which was a sign of the glory days of Israel, when Israel was everything it ever dreamed of being. Ezekiel and his fathers and brothers and grandfathers and uncles, they were priests preparing to be priests. And his whole life was set apart for this work. He would have been trained primarily in three areas. One, tending to temple life and, and sanctuary worship. Two, uh, teaching and studying Holy Scripture. And three, officiating sacrifices. You're seminarian, so perhaps I'm belaboring the point, but just in case, I'll remind you, these sacrifices were meant to deal with sin and to keep people holy. Once a year at the Passover, there would have been a sacrificial lamb and a scapegoat. And the sins of the people would be taken on by the scapegoat, which would be released into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people far away from the holy of holies at the center of the temple, taking them far away. And then the pure lamb would be sacrificed for the cleansing of sin. Now, all of it was aimed at basically getting sin out of the way so that they could draw near to God's holy presence. Now, we don't know much about Ezekiel's early, earliest years, having been trained in Solomon's temples, but truly, these probably felt like the days in which the people of Israel were alive and vibrant, the memories of David and Solomon still clinging to the walls. Now, let's take a look at Mildred. Mildred was raised in Seattle, Washington, to a family who knew firsthand the saving grace of God. See, her father was raised by an alcoholic, and their family bore the, the wounds and the burdens of that. And so when they discovered a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it changed everything. And not just that, they found a group of Christians in Seattle who were teaching and preaching this experience with the grace of God that transforms lives into the likeness of Jesus. And their family was changed by that, and she saw and experienced that as a little girl growing up. They helped to plant the Seattle First Church of the Nazarene alongside a preacher who's known in the Church of the Nazarene. His name is Phineas F. Brzee. And Mildred remembers hearing Dr. Brzee as a little girl. She sat in services where he preached and she described later in life that he stood like Moses before the people and the people responded. She also remembers hearing preachers who were not so awesome. Uh, she records that she remembers hearing a preacher who just rattled on and on, and nothing made sense. At five years old, she went home from that sermon, and she prayed to God. She said, God, if you will let me be a preacher, I will preach sermons that people can understand. <laughs> what a good prayer. <laughs> May God answer. What a good prayer. Mildred remembered 
how genuine and authentic the faith was that she was experiencing, even when the sermons weren't that great or the theology wasn't perfect, she remembered the authenticity of the community and how they were responding. The holiness movement was still a movement. It was alive and vital. Mildred saw it and experienced it. She grew up right in the thick of it. Back to Ezekiel. We don't know much about Ezekiel's life before the exile, but we do know that he must have witnessed some of the things that he describes in his prophecy when he still lived in Jerusalem. This city that was supposed to be a holy city on a hilltop, that was set apart like a lamp on a lampstand, well, where the priests like Ezekiel were always making these sin sacrifices, but he was watching sin amount more and more. He describes in his prophecy primarily two different types of sins. First, the sin of idolatry, a failure to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He describes it like having a divided heart that's torn in pieces with too many loves, offering God only the scraps and the leftovers. The second kind of sin was the sin of injustice a failure to love your neighbor as yourself, ignoring the laws about the care for the poor, the orphan and the widow, denying food and shelter to the immigrant and the foreigner, filling your belly while your neighbor starves. But still every year, priests would march into the Holy of Holies. Every year they would send off their scapegoat, sacrifice their lambs, content that their sins were far away from them as they went on in idolatry and injustice. And Ezekiel could sense that something was wrong, deeply wrong. It was like an illness was infecting the people of God. Back to Mildred. Mildred did everything a young preacher ought to do. She went to a good school, a Nazarene school. She not only got a degree, she graduated at the top of her class and she stood out so prominently that she was taken on to be mentored by the president of the college that she attended. She married a preacher. She became a preacher. She preached and she taught. She used all the words that she was supposed to use. She prayed all the right prayers and sang all the right songs, but she was continually bothered by this gaping hole between the words that she was saying and the way that people were living. The experience of holiness or sanctification had had become almost like some kind of assembly line that was cranking out converts like the Ford factories were producing automobiles. But she saw at the altars week after week the same people praying the same prayers and performing the same acts. The same people who spoke of living sinless lives did not seem to reflect holy lives. And something in her heart began to break. She wrote these words. I tried to look a piety I couldn't feel. I shouted when it seemed the right thing to do. I prayed loud when the preacher said we ought. And rather suddenly, the whole unsavory farce broke around my head leaving me an almost full-fledged skeptic, cold-blooded and adrift. The divine formula upon which I had pinned my faith didn't work. Back to Ezekiel. 
In 597 BC, the Babylonian army laid their first attack on Jerusalem. This time, the temple was left standing. Many in Jerusalem remained, but the whole Zadokite tribe of priests were taken from their homes and their places of worship. Along with many other in Jerusalem, they were carried off in shackles to live in a foreign land. Ezekiel among them. Ezekiel lived through this traumatic event with his brothers and sisters in Israel as everyone in the community is trying to grapple with what this could mean. They are God's holy people, God's chosen people. And, and these Zadokites who were taken away, they were the tribe of priests to keep God's people holy, to prepare them for the temple. How could this have happened? And yet it's here, along the banks of a foreign river, here in this land of their enemies, here in this unlikely place, that God gives Ezekiel a vision. That God tells Ezekiel the true desire for a holy people. That the real point of all the sacrifice and the ritual was never about driving sin out of them, but putting a new heart into them. One heart, Ezekiel says, one heart that's not divided up among idols and selfishness, one heart that is wholly devoted to God alone. The people of Israel are sick at this point. They are ill, close to death, you could say. As the Babylonian army is on their way back, marching back to take the rest of Jerusalem. And this time they will not be so kind to the temple. But Ezekiel, before that ever happens, Ezekiel has had this vision. He can see what God is up to. And he can see that not even death could put out the heart that God wants to give to them. The people of Israel will need to trust in God to bring dead things back to life. Back to Mildred. Mildred goes through a season of sickness and she is sick in many ways. And she wants to get far from some of the forms of religion that have been wearying her soul and so she takes a teaching position in Japan. She's teaching Bible and theology at a school there in Japan, but finds that it's difficult to communicate the doctrines that she's been teaching all of her life to these Eastern-educated students who are educated in Eastern philosophy and religions. There are, are people who have been brought up in a culture of Buddhism and Shintoism, Taoism, and the formula of doctrine just didn't connect with these Eastern pupils. And so she had to find new ways to articulate, translate, communicate things like creation, justification, salvation, sanctification, holiness. And it stretched her here in this faraway place, far away from the site of the original holiness movement. And it's here in Japan, so far from where she first experienced the holiness movement, that she encountered as a little girl, that Mildred discovers words to describe the relational holiness of God. And she articulates that this relationship is always dynamic and moving, growing and changing, never static or rigid. And these Eastern students, they connect with that. They can understand that. 
And so it's over these years of teaching in Japan that Mildred writes a book called A Theology of Love. She puts pen to paper and describes this relational dynamic of holiness in which the believer is moving ever closer to God. And in this theology of love, she describes sin as a distortion of the image of God and a disruption of God's good order. In other words, sin is not like a substance that you have to scrub off of you. Or Mildred puts it like this. She says, holiness is not the absence of sin, Sin is the absence of holiness. And so instead of driving sin out like a scapegoat into the wilderness, we grow in holiness and find that there is simply no place for sin like idolatry and injustice to take root in our heart. It is receiving a new heart and a new spirit and this dynamic relationship with a God of love that transforms us into Christ's likeness. So the formula of the holiness movement in Mildred's day, it might have been dying, but a God of holy love would never stop transforming God's people. Back to Ezekiel. Anointed with the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel begins to prophesy to the exiles in Babylon. And some of those words probably make it back to Jerusalem back to the friends and relatives that are still living in the holy city, wondering if Babylon is going to come back and destroy them. And he prophesies that this exile is not the end of God's faithfulness. In fact, he says that this exile is a result of their faithlessness. And he confronts them about their disobedience, their idolatry and injustice, fake religion filled with sacrifice and ritual that has failed to make them holy. And he tells them that if they would turn to the Lord, even now turn to the Lord and repent and let God give them a new heart, that God will do it. But the people back in Jerusalem that catch wind of this message, they do not like this. They do not like this message. They would much rather believe that it's actually Ezekiel and his Zadokite buddies that are really the problem. And now that they are gone like a scapegoat driven far away into the wilderness, carried off into exile, well, the people of Israel are pure again. And they can carry on their lives without Ezekiel and his annoying sermons constantly nagging at them. Back to Mildred. Mildred's theology of love is known well in the Church of the Nazarene these days. But it was not quite the case when she first published it. In fact, I've heard pastors who were young in ministry when her book first came out in the 1970s who said that they had to hide copies of a theology of love behind other books in their offices because they were afraid that a professor or a district superintendent might walk in and see them with this contraband literature. It was controversial at the time. In fact, Two years after Mildred died, an article came out in a holiness journal called Why the Holiness Movement Died by Dr. Richard Taylor. And in it, Taylor blamed Winecoop and her definition of sin specifically for the death of the holiness movement. 
It, it was as if he felt like if we could just keep shaming sinners to the altar and preaching the sin out of them, then maybe the holiness movement would still be alive and well. I wish that Mildred had been alive to respond to Dr. Taylor. I don't know what she would have said. And I am nowhere in the league of the atmosphere of Mildred Bang's wine coop. But I might speculate that she would have replied with something suggesting that the holiness movement died long before her book came out. That the movement died the moment that holiness became a formula focused on casting sin out and neglecting receiving the gift of God's new heart and new spirit. But the good news is, God can bring dead things back to life. Only problem was no one wanted to admit that the bones were dry. Theologian Robert Jensen suggests that all of Christian theology is basically answering the question that God poses to Ezekiel later in his prophecy in chapters 36 and 37, when God says, oh man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Does death win? Do we spend our whole lives on the rat race trying to evade death and pretending like everything is fine so we don't have to admit that the bones are dry? Do we keep looking for another set it and forget it formula for faith? Or do we trust that God can bring bones back to life? Why have I spent all this time telling you these two stories? There's a lot of talk right now about people deconstructing faith. You know, when, when you're young and you're raised in a faith tradition, for those of you who are raised in a faith tradition, faith is something you don't even hardly think about. It is like the air you breathe, and often it feels alive and fresh. But as you get older, and perhaps especially for academic communities like this, you get to a place where you recognize that faith is something that you can Think about it. Almost like you can take it out and examine it to see if it still makes sense. And this is often when we discover what Weinkoop discovered, gaps in the credibility, inconsistencies in the formula that we were given. A friend of mine often says, Shauna, remember, today's problems were yesterday's solutions. The faith formulas that we were handed as children were a good faith attempt to put into words, to hand down and explain this dynamic relationship with a living God that is beyond our capacity for communication or comprehension. And I'm so grateful for brave souls like Ezekiel and Mildred, prophets in their own time, who dared to speak up about the dry bones. As I've shared this story in other places, I often encourage people to, to imagine that if we want to see a movement of God's holiness in this generation, holiness that transforms hearts of stone, rebellious people who are lost in idolatry and injustice, given a new heart that is singularly devoted to God alone, if we want to see that kind of movement, we have to first admit when the bones are dry that the formula is not working 
that people are not deconstructing faith because we've gone too soft on sin. They're deconstructing faith because there are gaps in the credibility. And that doesn't mean that there's gaps in God's holiness. Keeping in mind that today's problems were yesterday's solutions. But I say this here in a unique place where just a year ago there was this Asbury outpouring. I don't know what that was like for you. I don't know what that was like to live in a place that for a moment in time was the focus of so many evangelicals around the world. But I know that I talked to some spiritual mothers and fathers in my life who are from a different generation who are watching what was happening here feeling like they were seeing dry bones coming back to life, seeing a resurrection of something that they didn't know would ever happen again, almost like they were watching at the tomb as Lazarus walked out. But I don't know what that was like for you here in a place where we also have to sometimes take faith out and look at it and examine it and sometimes see gaps in the credibility and all the complexity of being in the national spotlight in that moment. I don't know what that was like for you. But I know that God gave Ezekiel a vision of a new heart and a new spirit. And God gave Mildred words to describe relational holiness when she desperately needed it. And God gave Asbury an outpouring when we thought that those things were done and passed. But most of all, more importantly than any of those things, God gave us Jesus. And if you want to know what holiness looks like, you look to Jesus. And so I trust today, friends, that God will give you everything you need for a holy life if you will receive the gifts of God for today. And if you are experiencing any kind of crisis today, wondering if your faith can hold on in a world that seems to have lost its mind, find peace in the assurance that God will give you everything you need in this season and the next, if you receive the gifts, O people of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your gifts of grace today. Just as we were reminded of the gifts in the past that have brought us here to this place, Lord, we thank you for this promise of a new heart and a new spirit. So would you draw us ever closer to your holy love that we would want more of you in every way. Lord, we confess when we have hearts of stone. We confess today that the bones are dry and so, oh God, would you move in the way that we need for this moment, right now, today, that we might be your people with your heart for our neighbors, alive with your spirit in this moment in time. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.